As I've said before, I was raised in a very devout Roman Catholic family, and like many who go to church with their parents growing up, regardless of the denomination you were a part of, I didn't like going very much, and, uh, and was a bit of a rebel, to say the least, and got into all sorts of trouble as a youngster. Uh, my senior year in high school, I started dating a girl who I was really attracted to, and uh, her friends and her from her church had communicated privately that um, if she didn't start bringing me to church and if I didn't demonstrate that I really uh, was a Christian and wanted to be a Christian, that she couldn't date me anymore. Of course, I didn't know any of this was going on. She just invited me to go to her youth group, and it was a youth group at a Pentecostal church. Now, I'd never been to a Pentecostal church, wasn't even sure what a Pentecostal church was. But I just know when I went and I enjoyed it right away. The music was delightful. There was a band. There was a ton of young people, and they sang with such enthusiasm. It was very different from my experience growing up in a church that was very liturgical and very formal. And it appealed to me almost immediately. And then the, the man who was the youth pastor spoke, and he spoke of Christianity in a way that finally registered with me. Uh, it made sense to me. I could be forgiven. I was going to be okay with God by just simply humbling myself and receiving Christ as Savior, and all of that sort of lined up, and um, that evening I gave my life to Christ, fully gave my life to Christ for the first time. That set me on a bit of a spiritual journey. Um, my parents weren't particularly thrilled with this journey at first because it meandered as I went to college through all sorts of fairly charismatic, to say the least, churches, some churches that were way uh, crazier than anything uh, I'd be, even been associated with in the Pentecostal church where I came to give my life to the Lord. One particular time in college, I went to a church where a, a, an evangelist who was relatively well-known, he was on the Trinity Broadcasting Network regularly, and he was speaking, and at the conclusion of this service, he uh, had said, if you want to be have your hands laid on, come forward. And of course, this looked like something I wanted to do. And I had needs in my life and wanted spiritual movement in my life. So I went forward with my friend, and uh, I was standing next to him, and he was really well-versed in the charismatic experience of, of uh, our childhood youth. And uh, the guy came up and laid hands on him, and my friend kind of fell backwards in the jargon of the movement. It's called being slain in the spirit. And I presumed that what would happen was is you would get there, they'd lay their hands on you, you'd pass out or become so weak in the knees that you would just sort of fall like collapse or something. So he laid hands on my head and I was kind of waiting for this moment and he pushed me. And, and I was, and of course I was just kind of sort of playing along. I didn't know what to do. So I stayed as stiff as an ironing board and kind of went back. And so I'm laying there on the ground and I'm thinking, Okay, is this what this is about? Is this the experience? Okay, this, this can't be the experience. I'm totally conscious. And, and I really felt like an idiot. So I did what idiots do. I stood back up and I went back up to him after he got done praying for the next person. And I said, it didn't work. <laughs> and he came over and he pushed me harder. <laughs> and so I just fell back again. And I'm laying there on the ground going, something's not registering here. And very disappointed, very disillusioned, I got up and left the service because I thought, you know, something's not right. I, I, 
What did I do wrong was really the question. What's wrong with me? How come I didn't get the experience that it seemed like everybody else around me was getting? What I've discovered in all of those journeys that eventually landed me in a Presbyterian world, which is quite a journey, you know, to swing from one end of the pendulum to the frozen chosen and then back in the middle again, um, the, you know, this is a part of my life. And what, ha- what I've discovered is, is that for those of us who've come from charismatic church backgrounds, sometimes in our zeal to experience God, we listen to others who claim to have had an experience that they say was legitimate. But right off the top, I'll just say, if your or my charismatic experience is prohibited by Scripture then you can automatically say it's illegitimate because the Spirit of God wouldn't contradict what he'd revealed in Scripture. For instance, praying out loud in tongues during worship without knowing for sure there is an interpreter present. This is not unclear from the book of 1 Corinthians. But I can't tell you how many times I was in a charismatic church and the pastor would say, let's all pray in tongues out loud. And everybody would just start praying in tongues out loud. And they find a way to sort of ignore the scriptures. That's just one example, but this is a common experience for those of us with Pentecostal backgrounds. My friends and I in college would pray for someone to get the gift of speaking in tongues because someone told us that at Pentecost, the believers all received the gift of tongues, so God wanted all believers to have this gift And after trying for some time without any genuine results, we were again disillusioned as to why everyone didn't receive that miraculous gift. And what we didn't know is that when you read the book of Acts, sometimes there are things that are descriptive and not necessarily meant to indicate that all believers will have that same experience. Some of the events have a historical purpose to fulfill the covenant that God made with his people. And either way, if you don't know the whole story, and put another way, if your biblical theology is incomplete, you can get trapped emotionally and mentally into a doctrine that will cause you and others great pain and psychological harm. And this is particularly true about today's passage in, in the book of Acts chapter 2. Uh, Pentecost. The, the root word of the denomination known as Pentecostal. If you don't read the entirety of the New Testament, you'd erroneously believe that because the first followers of Jesus all prayed in tongues, God expects or wants all believers to pray with other tongues. And there are some that would contend that your spiritual experience with God is substandard if that doesn't take place. A scripture is very clear that not everyone has the same gift. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 30, the Apostle Paul wrote, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, Are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak 
with other tongues? Do all interpret? Obviously, these are rhetorical questions that are all answered no. We're going to study Acts 2, but we're going to do it in four parts. All right, so we're going to look today at the event, next week the sermon, then the response, and then the fruit. And it all surrounds this event called Pentecost. So what is Pentecost? It's more than the root word of Pentecostal. The festival of Pentecost was set by God to be celebrated 50 days after the Sabbath that occurred at the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So hence, 50 you, five, uh, the word five would give you the root word for penta. Pentecost was set 50 days after the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Pentecost always came on the first day of the week, inaugurating a new week. And it was actually seven weeks of seven days. So Pentecost was also known as the Feast of Weeks. The holiday celebrated the wheat harvest, and, uh, and I think in a symbolic sense it is appropriate that the very first big harvest of souls would take place on Pentecost. They became the first evidence, these believers in Acts 2 that would receive Christ would become evidence of Jesus' intention that we'd bring the gospel to all people. And this is what you're seeing in Acts chapter 2 when they begin to speak with languages that the people assembled for this festival could understand. People from all over the world, Jesus said in Acts 1.8, we just looked at this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Pentecost, it was another time for the people of God to gather in Jerusalem. It was one of the three demanded pilgrimages that they had to make back to Jerusalem. This was a, f- a fun time, you have to imagine. You'd see friends and family. It was you know, a journey for some people. They were coming from all over the, pl- all over the place. And, and yet they'd come here to experience God. And, and at Pentecost, they were introduced to something that the Lord was doing in His new covenant. Today's big question is, what is Pentecost's meaning? That's what we're going to talk about. And the first meaning of Pentecost is the presence of power. You see this when Jesus tells the disciples, you'll receive power. But the reason for God's demonstration of power is evident in the text. When this day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, it says in verse 1, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If you've never been caught in a hurricane, and those of us from uh, the Gulf Coast of Florida, uh, we have, my friend Karen in the back, we, this is a part of life. 
in, in the, the panhandle of Florida. It's multiple times a year, tropical storms weave their way through the Gulf of Mexico and into Mariana and Tallahassee and all those places along that way. And, and you, we've actually been hunkered down in our homes and heard the winds and thought, whoa. And it sounds like a train. I was in West Virginia on a camping trip and we were in the middle of a storm, and it turns out it was a tornado when we came out of our tent. All of the tops of the trees had been ripped off. Thank the Lord we were protected from that, but it was loud. Um, come to think of it, I, I, I've been in earthquakes, and I've been in droughts, and I've been in blizzards, and I was evacuated from my home because of wildfires. I think I'm a volcanic eruption and I would think a tsunami from like hitting for the natural disaster cycle. You know what I'm saying? I'm very close to getting it all. You know, I, I digress. Sorry. Uh, the disciples were promised the Holy Spirit, but they did not know what to expect. And just because they knew it was God doesn't mean that a demonstration of God's power wouldn't unnerve them a bit just the sheer sensory experience i mean think of the times where you've done things that you know were safe like going on a roller coaster i mean you know it's safe or they wouldn't let people go on them but it's still scary i mean it's still like whoa man this was whew, never experienced that before that was powerful and this is what the disciples and others were experiencing. Flames appeared. A mighty rushing wind filled the whole house. Interestingly, the, wind, the words wind and spirit are the same in Greek as they are in Hebrew. And the two concepts are so closely related in Scripture that even Jesus mixes the two when he's explaining in John 3 to Nicodemus, he says to this Pharisee, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, huh? And Jesus says, well, let me flesh this out for you. And in John 3, 8, he actually says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. If you're familiar with the Old Testament in Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai, the fire on the mountain represented the presence of God. In the same way, the tongues of fire represent the presence of God as the disciples were filled with the Spirit. The fire appeared on the believers. So why the big show? Anytime a miracle occurs in Scripture, the primary reason is that God's glory may be seen. Miracles validated a person's claim to speak for God. In this case, the apostles were validated as witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Up to this point, they've been remaining a bit off the grid for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is Jesus told them to wait patiently. So think about it. I mean, Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected, and then you've got seven weeks so it's really not that long. It's not even an entire summer, if you think in terms of our experience of months. Time would have made them have to think about all of the things that they went through and what they saw, and they're just trying to process everything that had happened over the past several weeks, and then several days before that, Jesus says, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the gift I'd promised. By the power of the Spirit now, they had been given the ability to speak in various languages so that 
people around them would know that the message they spoke was from God. In this case, the show of force was to validate the claim that was about to be made that we'll study next week. The sermon that he's going to announce to all these people. They had, in some ways, been in hiding. And now all of a sudden, power erupts to validate what they're about to say. My favorite demonstration of this in all of Scripture comes from 1 Kings 18, when Elijah the prophet was challenging the prophets of Baal. And to to summarize and make it simpler to understand, he was basically putting them, said, let's let's have a public contest to see whose God's really, you know, listening, whose God is really God. So they set up this altar, and the prophets of Baal make complete fools of themselves all day long, trying to use incantations and dancing to get some type of movement. And then at the end, Elijah starts to mock them, which is funny when you think about it. He's talking a little trash. And then he clears the deck and, you know, has to make it even more amazing. He pours water all over the the sacrifice and then prays. And then the Spirit of God comes down and burns everything up and even licks up the water in the trenches. And it says in 1 Kings 18 that when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. The the power of God should humble human beings, but we tend to think pretty highly of our own capabilities. That is until we face something that is beyond us. You know, they they have a saying in the military, especially during wartime, there are no atheists in foxholes. And, and the reality is, is that we can be very proud about how we can function independent of thinking about God, depending upon God. But when the crud hits the fan, we find out real fast whether or not God was really God to us. He demonstrates His power He deploys it from time to time to remind humans that while he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, he is also powerful. He powerfully created the world with the word of his testimony. According to the scripture and Christian creed, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. That will take place in power. People will stand. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, this will be an overwhelming sensory experience. The power of God will be seen. And God wants we as Christians, He wants us to be able to worship Him with that in our hearts and minds. He wants us to know. He wants us to worship Him correctly and humbly receive His Word. But to do that, He must be God. This is why the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The the first purpose for Pentecost was the presence of power. People needed to know 
Jesus really resurrected from the dead. These apostles really were speaking by the power of the Spirit. What they were saying was true. God was on full display. This is legit. Second thing you see, and the second purpose for Pentecost, the second meaning we would derive from it is not just the presence of power, but the power of presence. Verses 5 through 8 says, There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? The observation of the onlookers was an accurate one. Uh, These were merely Galileans. These were uneducated fishermen for the most part, and their friends, not people who'd traveled the world or studied languages at prestigious schools. In Luke's gospel, he showed how others used the term Galileans as a bit of a pejorative expression. Oh, you're a Galilean. And and this is how Peter was recognized when he was uh, identified as one of the followers of Christ, and then he denies the Lord. They say, you're with him. You're a Galilean. And it's pretty funny because in history too, there was an early Christian heretic. The church had come to call him Julian the Apostate. He was actually a king. And he used the epitaph, you know, he said Jesus was a Galilean and his disciples were Galileans. And in fact, he made a law that you could only refer to Christians as Galileans. Galileans got the last laugh at the end, though, you know what I'm saying? Because, A, the only disciple that wasn't a Galilean was Judas. So, you know, there you go. Um, And then, of course, a Galilean sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling heaven and earth. So, go, go Galilee. You know what I'm saying? I mean, things are going well for the Galileans in the long run. In the short run, though, uh, they were not thought of as the most powerful people in the world, They had previously fled the mob. And now they're boldly entering back into the culture and proclaiming in powerful ways the wonders of God. So what's the difference? Well, it's the power of God's presence. While Pentecost was certainly about the presence of God's power, Almighty God wanted the world, He wanted us to hear that this power, His presence, His Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God, would now reside in human hearts. In this instance, this was the purpose of speaking in tongues and seeing fire. Pentecost was purposed to conjure image of past evidence of God's glory to show the fulfillment of prophecy about God pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. Just as God appeared on Mount Sinai in thunder and fire and wind, so the phenomenon of God's glory filled the apostles' room and made such a noise that large crowds heard it and came running. We see in Exodus 40 that the cloud of God's glory covered the tent of meeting and then it filled the tabernacle. The spectacle was visible for all to see so they would know that God was present. In 2 Chronicles 7, we have the the historical account of 
Solomon building the temple that his father was promised that his son Solomon would build. And at the dedication of the temple, Solomon prays. And then this happens. As soon as Solomon finished the prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Does that sound familiar? When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This Pentecost event was given so that God could communicate the realities of the gospel. He is holy and powerful, and yet He graciously condescends to live within His covenant children. He's powerful, but He makes Himself present in the lives of all who trust Him. The new covenant of God, made possible by the death of Jesus Christ and His ascension into heaven to present His own blood as an atoning sacrifice, provides that we are now the tabernacle of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. But while he was incarnate as a humble carpenter from Galilee, now he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling heaven and on earth. So how is he still God with us? Well, he is God with us by sending his Holy Spirit to live inside you and inside me. Solomon's temple was man-made. It eventually was destroyed by occupying enemies because of Israel's disobedience. By contrast, the temple of the Holy Spirit, your being, if you're a Christian and mine, was made by God. And it shields us from our enemies forever because of the obedience of our Savior Jesus. The Holy Spirit's presence is what gives us power. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is something that you and I, if we're honest, are often guilty of minimizing. And then it's not too difficult to see why God will allow super difficult situations to occur in our lives so that we will realize He's with us and call on His power to bring about this change. We're so prone to forgetting. We're so prone to saying, oh, sure, the Spirit lives in me. It's no big deal. It's a huge deal. It's an enormous change. This was the new covenant. This was a new thing. You and I now get to be people who don't leave the Spirit of God here in this building and walk away. You are the temple of God, at work, in traffic. I'll pause there for a minute for those of you with road rage issues. (laughs) At home, the way you love your spouse, the way you love your kids, do you realize that God's not off somewhere unaware? He is in the middle of all that because He lives in you. And this should also dynamically change the way we relate, especially to people who also have the Spirit of God in them. I mean, 
we struggle in our neighborhood churches do with uh you know the litter that gets left behind by people who are in crisis and homeless and need we spoke of it before here there are churches that are a lot worse off and synagogues where people will spray paint racial discriminatory things on the wall and deface houses of worship there have been experiences in the past where we've seen people and their racial rage burn down churches and we think to ourselves churches no one should do that to a church but you and i are now called to see each other as tabernacles of the living god we shouldn't be painting graffiti on each other we shouldn't be defacing one another we shouldn't be doing the things that we often so easily do because we forget that the if somebody's a believer they're god's child and his presence lives in them see the presence of god in your life is should radically change the way you and i live you don't leave him behind he goes with you everywhere you go you think you're sneaking off to do something you know you shouldn't do if you're a christian he's not staying behind you're dragging him to that event and you'll have a conversation about that one day i promise you he will discipline his children because he loves you and he lives in you on the day of pentecost a new temple was dedicated and god's glory filled it by the giving of the holy spirit the tongues of fire and the sound of rushing wind indicated that he was present and believers in christ had now become the dwelling place of god and that is what you are if you have genuinely trusted in christ and turned to follow him let me pray